0: So welcome back to the History Cafe. And we're really delighted today to have Matthew Kidd join us, who's part of the English faculty in Oxford and particularly is project manager. A fantastic new project called Their Finest Hour. Matthew, tell us about Their Finest Hour.
1: Well, thank you. Yes. So this is a digital history or digital archive project based at the University of Oxford. But we're funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Now, the aim is really simple. We want to encourage people from all backgrounds all across the UK and the Commonwealth countries to share any stories and objects that have been passed down to them by their parents, their grandparents and any other family members who experienced the Second World War in some way.
0: So it's about the Second World War specifically. Yes,
1: that's right. Yes, specifically the Second World War. We we are quite lenient if it's 37 or if it's 46. We're okay. But specifically, we're trying to focus on, yes, the Second World War period. Once we encourage people to come along and and share these items and stories, we want to get them into a free-to-access online archive, which we're going to publish in June 2024. The 6th of June 2024, I should say, which is the 80th anniversary of D-Day. Yes, exactly. So that's the idea, is we launch it on that day.
2: Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk about historical stories everyone knows. We want to try out some new ideas. I'm Penelope Middlebow.
0: And I'm John Rosebank. And we're revisiting stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
2: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
0: And today we're talking to Dr. Matthew Kidd, who's project manager of Their Finest Hour, which is working with the public to make a collection of memories and objects, or I suppose we should say photographs of objects, that have a connection with the Second World War. And Matthew, you're inviting anyone to bring an ad to your collection and to bring along absolutely anything they might have.
1: Now, i should mention there are two ways we collect these stories and objects firstly people can just go on the website and click share your story and you can just upload the information there but i'd say the most popular way in which we do this is by organizing what we call digital collection days and if you imagine the antiques Roadshow, where people put on an event at a certain venue people are encouraged to come along with their objects with the stories attached to their objects and there'll be volunteers there on hand to record the stories digitise the objects and then get everything uploaded into our archive. And we're we're on course, I think, to run about 70 or 80 of those throughout the course of 2023, all over the UK from uh, the Outer Hebrides down to the Channel Islands.
2: And I think, Matthew, that you said that you were going to train your volunteers to collect. I mean, that, that sounds quite a complicated Process. What sort of training do they need to have with you? Yes,
1: that's right. So the idea is that volunteers aren't alone. When we, when people come to us and say we'd love to run one of these digital collection days, we provide them with everything you can possibly imagine. Really, we we will give them, like you say, a, a three hour training session. Covers everything from which venue should you choose, and um, what kind of objects are you likely to get. What's the best process of numbering objects? Because as you imagine, if you get a hundred people and they've all got different medals and things like that, how do you keep track of them? We plan to train 50 people. Um, We've actually already trained 107, with about 16 more today, actually, in a couple of hours. So the demand is out there for these kind of things. And we're just really excited to be able to get people from across all walks of life in all different parts of the country involved.
2: So these are people who've just got got in touch with you and said, we'd like to hold a gathering in a village hall or actually go out and look in our local area for the yes that's right
1: so the idea initially when we put the call out we sent mail shots advertising social media you name it um people then would come to us um but there are some times when you know it gets to march april and we're looking and thinking oh there's a gap in cornwall we will then go and reach out to places like museums archives libraries places of worship in cornwall so our aim really is when we started to get a sense of the demand was to maybe try and reach specific uh, venues that hadn't come to us and that's another way of of getting the word out there we're trying to cover off all the major cities and towns and regions and um, yeah as i say we're making good progress with that
2: so you have a website that people can get in touch with which we need to tell people about don't we yes
1: very simple to remember Theirfinesthour.org. That has everything you possibly need to know. There's a form that you can fill in to sign up as a volunteer. You can see what events are coming up in your area. You can subscribe to mailing list, And of course, crucially, you can go on, submit your stories and upload photos of any objects that you have.
0: You're going to get all kinds of stories still I mean, we were just in a West Country town just the other day and uh, went into the local village church, which had been bombed during the war, very badly bombed. And the guide told us, ah, well, they bombed it with incendiary bombs because... Uh, They wanted to keep the church tower standing to use as a marker. So the Luftwaffe deliberately dropped incendiary bombs to destroy the church but leave the tower there. Now, I think if you know anything about the way the Luftwaffe was working, second, well, that is... um kind of probably unlikely, but that's a a local story that's grown up and it's become a local thing that they tell everybody who goes into this particular church. And sorting out that kind of local story, which is lovely and colourful, but probably not accurate, sorting that out from what might be accurate, well, that's an interesting process in itself, isn't
1: it? It is, and part of the training, we say this. As you imagine, some people who are maybe local historians, family historians, very much work on the basis that you need to correct everything... Now, I would say, and and I might get criticised for this, but we are not going to do that. We're going to put the stories and objects up on the archive. And then it is up. It's the post-project phase, I suppose, is where we hope researchers will come in. And that is where that kind of analysis will go. But these are people's stories. And like you said, that local history, local knowledge, family stories that have been passed down and that may have have changed. And I can give you a personal one. My granddad worked in the boiler room of the LSTs that went over on D-Day. And every part of the story that he told me when I was a child, I can go and research and find out. I've got his ID card and things like that. But he also said that, oh, the German, the the Luftwaffe came over, blew up my ship and I had to swim to shore. Now, I have found no record of that anywhere. What do we do there? If I'm going to upload this story to the archive, do I ignore that bit and take that out? When it was actually something that he decided to share. And we don't know if it's true. It might be a way of him amplifying his role or or him feeling that actually his his role wasn't that impressive and he felt like he had to make it bigger somehow and that's why we call them stories because that's interesting in itself and and we don't want to exclude anything really from people's contributions
0: maybe it is that what you're collecting is not actually about the second world war it's actually about the memories of the Second World War. Um, we've had 60 years to change our memories and alter them. And, and, and so actually what's interesting about the project is not so much what it tells us about the Second World War, but what it tells us about the way that people have remembered it and changed their stories and refined their stories, particularly because we're not an oral culture. I mean, if you're having this conversation, I, I, I remember making a, a film in, in Malawi about a, f- a story in 1915. There were people who were, were there at the time and they remembered it, but there are also other people who'd had it from their grandparents or their uncles. And what they remembered, we were able to change later on was incredibly accurate now we're not an oral culture, we're not going to have that kind of thing here, so we're inevitably going to change our stories, we're going to forget them, we're going to invent other bits of them, it's going to change over time, so what you're actually getting is, is not actually the Second World War, what you're getting is a really interesting study of how the memory of the Second War has evolved over 60 years.
1: That's precisely it in a nutshell, absolutely. We're talking about memories and maybe the way memories change and evolve over time and, and, and what people choose to share and what they choose not to share. So we've bolstered up, I think, the theoretical side of Their Fine Style when we compare it to our previous projects. After we've allowed people just to share their story, we do have a few questions linked to memory Um, where we actually prompt them to say, thank you for that, that was really interesting. Do you mind if we ask you a few more questions and prompts? Um, One of which is, please could you choose one of the objects you brought along, pick it up and tell us how it makes you feel? Now, I should say that's a very simple and straightforward question, but a lot of work went into it and we have a steering group of academics who are working across different disciplines really informing these questions. And, And the reason we did that one is because when people came along and shared these stories with us, they sometimes welled up with with tears or they felt proud or they stuttered or there were gaps and there were pauses. All of that goes if you just try to write it as a factual thing. And so we've asked these extra questions and we've got some really, really fascinating responses. And maybe we can talk about that a bit later where I've I've kind of given you a quite an unscientific list of some of the words that people have come up with in response to that question well um, tell us i mean what what yeah,
2: tell us now <laughs> <Sounds fascinating. laughs> well you can imagine i
1: mean the, the objects were things like so, so if, if somebody came and told you a story and, and they shared it without being prompted often they would contextualize it so for example i told you about my granddad earlier and i mentioned d-day so I'm talking very much about him and I'm talking about his place in the, the war, the collective experience of the war. And I've obviously gone away and learned about D-Day and things like that. But when it came to us actually saying, look, focus entirely on one of those objects, what happens is people move from that collective perspective of trying to contextualise and broaden out the experiences of their loved ones. It takes them right down to the personal. And so it's things like... Um, You start feeling sad about the fact that my granddad's no longer here and you feel how, oh God, how brave they must have been. And I can't imagine what it must have felt like. And and those kind of answers. We also ask a question, what three words come to mind when you think about the wartime generation? Which is, again, a very simple question, but it's linked to that idea of trying to get people to think a little bit more and reflect on what's happening, what they're doing by actually sharing these things. So the words that came to people's minds were things like courage, generosity, love, stoic. That is the word that tops the pole, (laughs) stoic, resilient, steadfast, hardworking, adaptable, wise, respect, honor, strength, tough, resolute. Now, I would say those are quite typical responses. If people think about the wartime generation, particularly what we might call the classical or traditional narratives of the generation, the greatest generation those are quite standard. I am particularly drawn to when people give us a completely different uh, set of answers. Um, One person said, RAF, Tanya, Daddy. Now, (laughs) that to me is really fascinating because it was only then going and reading into that person's story that I realised Tanya was her sister who died during a dreadful accident during the war. Daddy was obviously to do with her father. And I thought that was really interesting because all of the others people seem to to go towards the collective, that sense of thinking about the generation as a whole. This person took an extremely personal approach to that question.
2: That's fascinating, isn't it? Because you see that we're all remembering only the positive. Yes. And that's probably because certainly in Britain, you know, we were never occupied. We can't imagine really how difficult it was. So, you know, you, you're... I can understand why people have gone for all those wonderful adjectives. But it's interesting that when I was researching in the Imperial War Museum amongst letters home or diaries that were kept at the time, not people's memories since, they were a lot more critical of certain aspects of the war. So I suppose you are also looking for original letters or diaries where people haven't necessarily put them through rose-tinted That's
1: right. Yeah. And um, one person submitted thousands of letters that her mother and father wrote to each other. um, And she described them as a fairly ordinary family. The the father was a soldier abroad and the mother stayed at home in London during the Blitz. This is a fascinating thing. And like you say, we're expecting the adjectives within those letters to not necessarily match the ones that subsequent generations are, are, are ascribing, I suppose, to that generation. One person I interviewed personally at an event was an exception to this, and and she said her three words that reminded her of the wartime generation was things like death, which you think, yes, and yet that is an exception. It is quite fascinating, I think. But yes, in terms of letters, I I expect those to reveal a completely different set of views as to uh, experiences during the war.
0: Yeah, there's a a very good uh, Oxfordshire author called uh, Julie Hankey who has a really completely fascinating book about to come out, with the correspondence between her father and her mother during the war. And what happened was their relationship broke down in the course of the war. Um, the mother was caught in the Blitz, had a young baby. The father was in the North African campaign. and could,
2: Never saw the baby. And, 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 well, and couldn't
0: understand each other, really. And in the course of the war, they try very hard to understand each other, but it's almost impossible to do so you can see this experience of wartime which we've never really seen before this relationship between couples on opposite sides of the, you know, the, of the conflict at home and, and on the front and how their relationship was put under huge strain um, that's something that we don't often hear it'd be interesting to see if you get any of that stuff also the criminality you know we know there's an awful lot during the blitz there's an awful lot of looting and this kind of stuff going on and you just don't hear about much of that it'd be interesting to see if any of that stuff comes out too absolutely and that is
1: one of our intentions and, and even though we've marketed this very much in, a, in a, a kind of way that I suppose has the traditional view of the war, the idea of the people's war and everyone came together and pulled together, we're conscious that there are revisionist views and that have challenged that uh, view. And part of the reason we're interested in this and, and we're going to spend a lot of time analysing the things that come in is because we want to see that, do the memories that the ordinary public retain or their views of the war does that correspond with that people's war idea and then there's obviously a lot of research to be done on where did that come from because i think a lot of work like you said there's a lot of great academic work on things like challenging the people's war idea about looting and and crime but how much has that seeped into public or collective consciousness?
0: Yeah, really interesting. I mean, the, the, the objects are interesting. I mean, you know, uh, I have a um, RAF flight suit, I think it comes from the 1950s, in fact. And we know who it belonged to. We know that he was a jet pilot. He was, in fact, he was in a big air collision over Berlin and crashed there and survived. Um, but the object doesn't tell me anything. You know what I mean? It's it's just, just a flight suit and the rest of his rest of his uniform. Um, I'm kind of slightly with Picasso on this. You know, Picasso said of museums um, that they're all lies. You know, just objects on their own <laughs> don't really tell you anything. It's it's the stories that go with them and seeing how they were used and so on. So I'm interested in 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 how you're going about using. Objects, how objects can actually in themselves tell us anything or whether it is that it's it's the emotions and the stories they provoke that you're really interested in.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's true. And I think that's the reason we decided to have set questions for the first time on this project. And I should say my colleague, Dr Stuart Lee, has worked on these kind of initiatives using the same model for 15 odd years. Um, I think this is the first project of its kind that, that we've done where we actually prompt people. And I think that's for the reason you just stated there is If we just get a photo of, you know, an RAF suit or something like that, unless we actually also get people to talk about it, what it means to them. Um, But even things like where do you keep it? I think that's an interesting question. Some people would have their granddad's war medals up in in a nice frame mounted up on the wall. Some people say, oh, I just came across it in the loft. And we find that quite interesting as well. How do people retain these? Where do they retain them? How did you find out about these things? Did you go off and do the research? Or are you just remembering what your mother or father told you? And and like you say, unless we also interview people and get people to actually verbalise these things, the object in and of themselves don't tell us a great deal. With one one exception, I think from a, I suppose, a, a quantitative analysis of what we get... I think that can tell us something, and it might be to do with the way we market the project. But if, for example, I don't know, a a large percentage of what we get focuses on the military side of the conflict. So imagine that the the bulk of materials that we collect are war medals and um, military paraphernalia and things like that. I would personally not be disappointed because this is a war, but I have tried very much, and we as a team have tried very much, to try and encourage Um, people to think much more broadly about the conflict so it wasn't just men involved uh, women were involved women weren't just involved in the auxiliary service and things like that but women just had to sometimes um, manage the, the household budget and things like that now we take a very inclusive view of what we want to collect and we do sometimes have to struggle and try our best to encourage people to share those stories as well I think you can tell a great deal if, for example, at the end of the project, if we have a thousand objects, I think it would tell us about in public consciousness what their view of war is. Is it a male military thing only or do they also understand that on the home front, there was a very different side of things.
2: It's really important that you get that message out there that you want to hear, even if they haven't got much of an object. You know, we always told that people made coffee from chicory. I still want to know. And dandelion, you know, that sort of what happened in the home. Yes.
1: And I would say that's why we go for that two pronged approach of stories and objects, because people often laugh at me because when I do the training, I say I am so inclusive that I want people to come and share with us that they're grandparents didn't say anything about the war (laughs) because you know I'm sure both of you know that oh he didn't talk about the war oh she didn't talk about the war is a very very common experience now I want our archive to reflect the totality of the war experience so if we're going to do that we would like stories of non-stories if you see what I mean And, and it's very hard to encourage people to log on to our website type in he didn't tell me anything and then log off. But that would be a true representation. Um, And like you say, actually, there are so many things that won't, won't have been kept because I suppose the traditional view of the war was that more masculine male side of things. And like you say, things like, I don't know, someone totting up the shopping list and things like that wouldn't have been seen as something that today would be fascinating to see.
0: Mm, it's, it's fascinating. Isn't it? I mean, uh, places are also, I don't know if, if that's something that you're going to be able to reflect on. I mean, it, we're just a couple of hundred yards from where, where we are, there was, until a few months ago, uh, a beautifully preserved bomber training airfield. The buildings were all there. Part of the runway was there and so on. It's all now been... Some of the old vans. One of the old vans was in one of the things there. The petrol pump was there and so on. And that had been preserved. It was only used between 1941, I think, 1940, 1941 and 1945. It was then abandoned, but it was preserved and kept used as farm buildings. But nobody wanted to knock it down until a couple of years ago when they just knocked it down and built a rather nondescript housing estate all over it interesting that that things get kept and get kept and get kept and get kept and then suddenly the moment reaches when we're not interested anymore it's gone
1: yeah and that's exactly (laughs) it and we're we're worried with things like um particularly if you keep things in a loft or or cupboards when somebody dies or when you move house these are things are really at at risk of being lost and that's why we're we're so keen to get as many but it's interesting you mentioned buildings we had an email recently from someone that says oh by the way i've still got this anderson shelter in my garden (laughs) Now, it's quite hard yeah. for us. They can't bring that along to an event. Um, I suppose they could take photos of it and upload it, but it's things like that that's making us think, oh, God, yeah, we hadn't really thought about <laughs> that. And secondly, something um, is how many memoirs have been written. Now, I don't mean by people that lived through the war. I mean people that have gone away and decided to write the story of their parents and grandparents and in some cases self-publish it through amazon and so we're getting a lot of pre-ready-made written stories very detailed and we hadn't really anticipated that perhaps we should have but that's again quite interesting especially when it comes to research and analysis comparing that narrative with somebody who spends 10 minutes on their lunch break typing up the story of their Uh, into our archives. So anyway, that's a couple of surprises we got that um, we hadn't anticipated.
2: When we were trying to do some edited diaries around the, the Second World War, they ended up being really quite educated, privileged people—people people who saw themselves as writers, or people working for the BBC, or politicians, ambassadors. That's not bothering you. You're finding actually that what's coming up now it's across
1: the social range
2: is is much more than has been known about. Yes, and
1: I, I should say my my background is is in that history workshop suggestion. So I've been really keen to, like you say, to diversify the kinds of stories and, and objects that. Um, are coming in in terms of class and social um, groupings and things like that. To be honest, I'd say that, yes, from my early analysis, and it's quite tentative at this stage, is that yes, we are getting a a nice diverse range of experiences, not just in terms of social class and things like that, but also regionally as well, all over the UK, um, some from Canada, New Zealand, um, and Australia as well. You get a really interesting
0: view of war when you step outside Britain. That's something that well, you hope to get, I guess, that's quite difficult to achieve, isn't it, to get a worldwide perspective on this thing?
1: Yes, it's a very ambitious thing. We haven't done it before in previous projects. Um, we need to set ourselves that ambitious target of saying that we're not just focused on the British experience, whether that's on the home front or through British soldiers and, and service men and women. But we're actually encouraging people whose grandparents fought in, for example, the Royal Indian Army and uh, in in all Commonwealth countries. And I'm pleased to say that actually in September, we're hoping to have one of these events at the National Sikh Museum in Derby. We're working with the UK Punjab Association and various other organisations linked to things like South Asian Heritage Month. To really get the message out there amongst those communities and encourage people, like you say, who contributed so much to the Allied side uh, of the war effort.
0: Do you think from your initial kind of stories that this really is beginning to challenge some of those common myths that were, as we know, created during the war for all kinds of good reasons? Um, about you know the, the blitz spirit and the threat of Nazi invasion, all these kind of things that we know were circulated at the time for very good reasons and have stuck in the collective memory. And it's very, very difficult for historians to dislodge those things and say it was more complicated, it was more refined, subtle than that. Do you think your results are beginning to go there and beginning to create a more rounded picture? Just,
1: I think so, and I think so in, a, in an interesting way because I think the actual objects um, that we're getting, particularly written things like m- memoirs from the time, letters, those kind of things, seem to be challenging even what their subsequent uh, generations, their relatives, their grandchildren are actually saying about them. So I think that's where there's a disconnect there, actually. And I wonder if... Yeah. Some of those more revisionist perspectives of the People's War idea might be validated, I think, by what we're finding. Yeah.
0: And and we'll make oh. sure to put some details on our website yeah, too we so will, that people can but know it's where really to go. really great. So, Such a good idea. Matthew, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. There are 70 evergreen podcasts now at the History Cafe and reading lists for every one of them. You can find them on our website, historycafe.org. And you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter.
2: We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and many other platforms. Just look out for History Cafe Podcasts with John and Penelope. And
0: beware of imitations.
2: Follow our regular blog at History Cafe Pod and spread the word.